Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss. I am delighted to be here with Kat Rosenfield uh, in this space that many an animal is walking across. Uh, it's my vision right now. They all look fantastic, very happy, very well cared for. How are you doing, Kat? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I didn't even, I got so distracted. Well, I got distracted by two things uh, that prevented me from doing a proper intro and saying that you're... Um, a very prolific and well-regarded podcaster and writer. Uh, it was it was the animals, but it was also uh, I want to talk about Jonah Hill. And right before I started recording, my wife shouted over, "Don't ask the questions everybody's asking about this." <laughs> and I don't exactly know what those are, but it somehow somehow this became a thing. I mean, we're talking. Here's why we're we're having this conversation. I mean, there are many reasons, but the main one is this. I just went to NBA Summer League, which is a very industry-focused event where people talk shop. And, you know, it's also a very male event. I don't know what the numbers are, but it, it's sports. It might be 75, 25. Usually people are talking trades, free agency, and all of that was happening. But also Jonah Hill. The Jonah Hill controversy was something that came up repeatedly dinners, lunches, and it made me go, I got to reach out to Kat because I know she'll have good thoughts on it. I listened to your podcast about it. That's my first question for you, uh, Kat, is why why this? Why is this the pop culture thing, the thing that theoretically doesn't impact any of us uh, that we bring our baggage to? And it's gone so viral. Uh, well, I mean, it's maybe it's just a slow news summer that must be part of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. excited to find out that this actually does have a sports connection. I was really wondering how you were going to make that fit. Um, so, yeah, why does it? Well, I think that there are, are two things going on here. One is that uh, it's celebrity gossip and everyone loves that. Who doesn't love that? The second thing is that it is part of this very kind of zeitgeisty way of talking about romantic relationships um, where everything has to be, even amongst ordinary people, but then especially if it's celebrities, everything has to be kind of made into a, like a controversy. Um, it has to be up for public discussion. I think that in the wake of the Me Too movement, we even came to kind of expect that anytime something went wrong between a man and a woman, um, we would eventually get to be a fly on the wall and and you know get mm. to read all their all their dirty well I was gonna say read all their dirty laundry which is a mixed metaphor um, <laughs> but you know they're they're gonna air it all out for our engagement and our enjoyment yeah um, I think there's a lot there's a lot to this one and it's why people brought their baggage all of their baggage to it and the thing with these celebrity gossip incidents on the one hand you can lament that you know you can lament that they're so meaningless. And what a frivolous people we are to focus on things that don't impact us. But on the other hand, they're great proxies for these dramas that we have interpersonally. And I think that this, this if I'm to try to diagnose why this was such a thing beyond the slow news summer, um, I think there are elements that everybody 
experiences in their lives, um, if they're in long-term committed relationships, but also elements that are a bit confounded by fame um, and maybe even this difference in status of him being famous and her perhaps not, not being so famous. And so it's got a little bit of a new spin on an old thing when you're looking at it. And that makes it so enticing to look at because, you know, committed relationships, especially marriage, they do require some sacrifices. There are things that one party wants from the other party. Is that controlling? At what point is it controlling? And hence the debate. Yeah, that's the interesting question. I mean, I think the fact that Jonah Hill is famous makes it seem to people like they get kind of a free pass to engage in um, basically trashing him or, or sort of violating his privacy, which, you know, this really did do, uh, you know, these intimate text messages between himself and his then partner were released by her into the wild. Um, but the fact that he's famous, you know, there's this sense of, well, he's not really a person, right? (laughs) Like Mm. he can, you know, if he's upset about this, well, he can go cry about it on a pile of money. Um, and that, you know, that makes it okay for us to engage in uh, basically savaging him. The other thing too, is that, um, as is so often the case with this type of incident, what could be seen as basically revenge porn without the porn, it's kind of like emotional vengeance on somebody who's wronged you, um, is positioned as something much more noble than that. It's especially when it's a a woman outing a man, it often takes on this valence of being really about all women everywhere who suffer so much under patriarchy and, and being disempowered and being victims of abusive men. And so this is getting back for the ladies. And I think that that makes people feel as though they have a kind of a, not just a free pass, but maybe a moral imperative to engage with this story. So there's that. Yeah, it's I, I I sense that there's less of that in the culture now. Um, Newsweek had a had a headline. I don't know if I've even said her name, his ex, who uh, released these text messages. Uh, the Newsweek headline was Sarah Brady scores big win amid Jonah Hill text controversy, and it was about how her various social media platforms uh, have now more followers, which I think is the most cynical way to frame something like this, but probably <laughs> in a way the most truthful, um, even if it's not intending to uh, be castigating the cynicism. Um, yeah, I mean, we're all in our different little compartments. I was in a very male space, so there was far more Jonah Hill sympathy with maybe a little bit of a dash of, you know, he's a weirdo, but you know, I don't think that whatever was asked here was unreasonable or as his ex framed it emotional abuse. Um, Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a question that we can derail towards. (laughs) Is emotional abuse a real thing? That seems like a very broad category. That seems like something where I look at it from the perspective as a married person when I see something like like that and I go, well, you could you could just you could just walk away. You know, you could Mm -hmm. just you could just go elsewhere. I mean, Physical abuse, yes, that's the thing. I, yeah, that's that's fairly obvious. But somebody asking of you what you are not willing to give back in return, I don't know. That just seems to be grounds for a breakup. 
Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things about this. Um, one, I think I will disagree with you. I think emotional abuse is a thing. How dare you? This is, don't you know this is my <laughs> podcast? No, this, is, this is the Agree with Ethan Hour. Sorry, I'll try to do better. Yeah, that's what um, I was trying to brand it as. But anyway. But I think emotional abuse is a thing, but I think it's a thing that every person has the capacity to engage in. Um, it's, you know, it's controlling, manipulative, cruel behavior. I don't think there is any person alive who has been in relationships with other people of any kind who's not guilty of this or has not been guilty of this at least once. Um, and that is even the case in relationships that are otherwise healthy. It's just, you know, people are fallible and it's it's very possible to slide into, a, you know, a, a place where you're being a jerk, basically. Mm. Um, you know, an emotional abuser, capital A, where you're slapped with this label and it defines you, I guess would be somebody who engages in this type of behavior by default and all the time and really kind of terrorizes their partner and and, you know, tries to wear them down. Um, but I don't think that every person who engages in abusive behavior, or even who has like a pattern of abusive behavior is necessarily a capital A abuser in that this defines them. I think it can be situational. I think that there are people who just bring out the worst in each other. And if they move on from that relationship, then they can each be a better partner to somebody else. And um, that kind of gets to the question of like, you know, why, why don't they just break up in this situation, which I really think is so salient because when you look at these text messages, um, and I don't know if we don't, do we need to recap for people what I've the... done? Let me just say, I've done a terrible job with the exposition <laughs> here. I opened up a Buzzfeed article, um, that, that recounts the whole thing. Then I got caught in the air thinking, is it, uh, you know, got am caught, I, am taking I, a, the, taking a quiz to see what kind of cat you are. The next thing <laughs> well, you knew. I did that. Uh, yeah. It turns out I'm a Maine Coon cat, which is cool. I like them. But I, um, yeah, it's easy to get dragged into the muck of whatever the hell this is. Uh, can you, okay, can you save me as my guest and do a quick exposition for somebody listening? I don't know. They might be listening from India or a country that is not bathed in our pop culture out here in the <laughs> States. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to, you know, as we're talking about this, to make sure that everyone knows what we're actually talking about, because we start saying things like emotional abuse and, um, and controlling behavior. And somebody could be sitting there like, well, that actually sounds really bad. Like, what did he actually do? So the short version of this is um, Jonah Hill and Sarah Brady were in a relationship, uh, I think a couple of years ago, they broke up about a year ago. She just this week, um, it is July 13th. So she just posted a bunch of screenshots of text messages between them from when they were dating in which Jonah Hill was basically giving her an ultimatum. And he was asking her to remove content from her Instagram and then also to uh, kind of change her lifestyle, her life, her relationships. Um, we should mention that Sarah Brady is a professional surfer or semi-professional surfer, which uh, is I got, sailing. I got some takes. I've got some takes on that later, but you okay. continue. Okay. So, okay. This is the, the really the meat of the text message. Um, Jonah Hill sends her a message. He says, plain and simple, if you need, and then there's a colon and these are bullet points, surfing with men, boundaryless, inappropriate friendships with men, to model, to post pictures of yourself in a bathing suit, to post sexual pictures, 
friendships with women who are in unstable places and from your wild recent past beyond getting a lunch or coffee or something respectful. I am not the right partner for you. If these things bring you to a place of happiness, I support it and there will be no hard feelings. These are my boundaries for romantic partnerships. So long story short, he doesn't want her to post sexy pictures online. He doesn't want to post pic- her to post pictures in a bathing suit, which as a semi-professional surfer, I think um, that's kind of a non-starter. And then he wants her to, you know, establish some boundaries in her personal life with friends that he apparently disapproves of. And the, I mean, the upshot of like, is this a reasonable request? I don't know. Like some of these things I think are the kind of thing that you actually do probably have a conversation with your partner about, but this is such a litany of things that Mm. I just, I think that at the point at which you find yourself texting a list like this to your partner and saying, if you don't do this, you could just stop and take a step back and say, I don't need to send this. I don't belong in this relationship. We're not compatible. We want different things. And that would be it. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the thing. It's a grab bag of things that are kind of related, but maybe aren't related and uh, people can relate to some of it. I think it, it brings up these like a variety of topics, you know, the friend one is a classic one. That's not a new social media. That's not a new social media thing that that's time immemorial where, uh, yeah, people have opinions on the friends that their partner has. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they don't want their partner to be friends with that person. And, when is that too big an ask? Should that ever be a formal ask or should you just be hoping? I mean, I had a friend, I had a friend, uh, he was not a bad guy, but kind of an abrasive guy. And he had friction with my now wife and there was never a formal, you can't be friends with him. But over time, the friendship went away. And Mm -hmm. I think that was for the good of my marriage. I think that was for the good of my relationship. So I I just look at it through that prism where I'm not sure that that's the most unreasonable thing to want, but sometimes it's the most unreasonable thing to ask for. And that's one aspect of this that people who are not celebrities, I think, are relating to in a discussion of this whole rigmarole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, um, because the thing that kept coming up was people were, were citing this as examples of coercive control, you know, that he's just trying to break her down and isolate her from people and, and so on and so forth. And I don't know. I mean, it's possible that he was, but I do think about, I, you know, I had a similar situation um, when I got together with my husband, which was a very, very long time ago. Um, I had at that time an ex in my life with whom I had a, a pretty toxic and kind of like codependent and weird relationship. And he was very territorial about me and even more so about my family and like a, I knew them first kind of way. Wasn't a big mm-hmm. deal when I wasn't with somebody, uh, seriously. But once I got engaged and then married, there was a point at which, you know, my husband and I had a discussion and he said, this guy's being weird and it's uncomfortable. And I said, you know what? Yes, he is. And it is uncomfortable and we're not friends anymore. Um, and you know, it wasn't as though there was a, a formal ask, like you said, it was just discussed. And I don't think it's wrong to discuss it. I think that couples kind of need to have these conversations as they're, you know, figuring out what kind of a life they want to have together and how they want to treat each other. Yeah. And sometimes what you ask for is just what you wish the other person was willing to do. And it's not necessarily bad to ask for it. An ultimatum is different. And I think when it comes to something like this, we don't know all the contours of these people's relationship. They are strangers to us. And the devil would be in the details. We don't know what these friends are like, for instance, and how that fits into the context of what 
what she is like, though I, I don't like her based on what has happened, but I don't know much about her. Um, I have to, I've got to be careful though. I've had one, uh, I've had one controversy, uh, where, uh, the Cavender twins, the way I wrote about <laughs> them, I think I was, I was sexist of the day on Twitter. So I need to, my team has gotten together and has advised me that I have to be careful on this particular topic, uh, when being too judgmental about one Sarah Brady, I do the irrelevant take to all of this though, um, that I do have from having grown up in San Diego. When when I saw it argued that she needs to post certain pictures of herself because she's a professional surfer, I did roll my eyes just because every every directionless person I grew up with was a, a quote-unquote professional surfer. And if I don't <laughs> see some rankings, you know, if I don't see some rankings, I don't see some wins, I read that you're in law school... Look, you know, maybe you should be free to post whatever pictures you want to post. That's a separate conversation. I just think <laughs> in the immediate aftermath of these things, it's funny how everybody gloms on to certain aspects of context and we don't have the full context on these strangers. And that was one where I went, yeah, you know, I don't I don't really buy that one. I don't really buy it. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is going to be my second controversy uh, where I've underestimated the quality of a professional female athlete. I don't know, but that was that was one take I had. Scattershot. <laughs> well, I mean, as somebody who grew up in a, a landlocked town in upstate New York, um, the idea of anybody being a, just a surfer at all is already very impressive to me. So when I heard mm. semi-professional surfer, I got like saucer eyes and said, "Ooh, <laughs> she must be fancy and like important." Um, <laughs> but I mean, one of the funny things I. I found about these text messages. I think one of his requests maybe in another in another message was that she not surf with men. And that just seemed astonishingly unreasonable to me. It was like, what if you're in the water and one gets in? Like, are you not allowed to share the entire ocean? Like, is there a square footage <laughs> area in which men are not allowed to be? Um, like, are you not allowed to catch the same wave? I don't know. And then if like one gets in the water, do you have to ask him to leave or do you have to leave? <laughs> is there such a thing? Is, is tandem surfing a thing like a tandem bike? I mean, that's the funny thing is I grew up around surfers, but I didn't actually surf myself mostly because it is such a subculture. And I would, um, I would sometimes run into people and they would ask where I was from. And I'm from a, a beach community where, where surfing is huge. And this person who might be from a landlocked place would go, Oh my God, did you, do you surf? And I would go, no. And they'd go, Oh, I would be surfing all the time if I grew up there, which is a little bit like saying, if you ran into somebody from Texas and you asked about whether they played high school football and then you go, Oh, I would have been the safety. I would have been, no, you've got to be, you've got to be pretty good to be doing it regularly where, where I grew up. And it is very, it's a very strange subculture. It's very territorial. If you mm -hmm. were to go out on Wind and Sea in La Jolla and just paddle around out there and try to learn how to surf, um, people would be very angry at you. Um, cars with out-of-state license plates get bricks put through their window. It's wow. You know, it's 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 its own culture. There's a lot of drugs. It's uh, it's it's kind of funny how it's presented versus, in a weird way, spiritually, as unrealistic as the movie Point Break is, it also might be the best characterization of it. Um, just in terms of, I don't know what, just the cultural the the, the cultural aspect. That's not to so say that all people, bank robbers then is what you're all saying. All bank robbers. <laughs> 
<laughs> Give me the money. <laughs> this is a this is a robbery. Um. Anyway, yeah, I, I, I'm getting derailed on San Diego and the way I talked growing up. Um, where, where even was I with this whole thing uh, other than slandering, uh, Sarah Brady as a fake surfer, um, professional surfer. I'm sure she's a real, I'm sure she's great. I'm sure. She's great out there. She's uh, better than either one of us. Let's just say that. Yeah. Better yeah. than either one of us. That is objectively, I'm at confident <laughs> at surfing. <laughs> Maybe not at privacy. Maybe not at discretion. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's yeah. the, uh, that's the other thing about this where, we all want to live according to a standard where certain norms, privacy norms are respected, but yet once it's out there, then, and we are part of this, this voyeuristic culture, we're all just sort of accepting it as it's, do you see that changing at all where we start to actually enforce the social norm of not doing this and take it seriously, as opposed to Newsweek celebrating it as a win that you've taken your private conversations and effectively monetize them? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, one of the things about this that I find the most distasteful is how you have a lot of different bad behaviors being put on display. And those behaviors are assigned either heroic or villainous, depending entirely on the sex of the person doing the thing. Mm. So it's basically, you know, if a woman is doing a thing that is um, borderline, I mean, I think it's worth noting that sharing your intimate communications with somebody in a vengeful way, um, that is in many contexts itself an abusive behavior. When men do this, <laughs> we call it revenge so. porn. Um, and, you know, but but because a woman did it in this case, it's like empowerment and, um, and you know, and what he did was then villainous. And the thing is like... I understand why women, especially young women, decide that they want to do this in the wake of a, a breakup when they're feeling salty about it. Or, you know, in this case, I think that this seems to have been at least in part triggered by the fact that Jonah Hill has moved on and recently had a child with somebody else. Um, and so, you know, he was like in the news or whatever. Um, but yeah, I understand that, you know, there is a real glow to doing this because in the immediate aftermath of posting something like that on the internet to shame your ex, you get this outpouring of attention and affection and adulation. Everyone's like, you're so brave. You know, you're so brave to share your story. Um, but it definitely is like, as the kids say, it is a red flag that you are not a trustworthy person in your intimate mm -hmm. relationships should things go awry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reading, I think this might, might be from the Newsweek. Uh, Brady, who lives in Hawaii, said she timed the release of her allegations with Hill's current partner, Olivia Millar, and the couple's weeks old baby in mind. Quote, I waited until she had her baby, Brady wrote on Instagram, so I knew they were like physically not impacted by me sharing this shit. <laughs> and she could be informed and make an informed decision of how she wants to care for herself and her baby. This woman's insane. Can we just say that? This woman's like, crazy. No, it was it was like a it was like a baby shower gift. It was a christening gift. <laughs> she's she's like the evil fairy who shows up oh. at the sleeping beauty thing and is like, You didn't invite me? Fine, I curse you with death. Happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> I, I try to make a rule and I, I would want it for everybody that you shouldn't be angry at people whose existence you had never known of before because you would see that kind of outrage. There's the, you know, the Central Park Karen or whoever, and you're you're angry at somebody 
suddenly when you never knew of their existence prior. And I would have to, you know, invoke that rule here. But I look at that and I go, that is a that's just that's that is very insane um, as a self justification and and rationalization and odd that you could uh, quote unquote win by doing such a thing is uh, rather amazing to me. And but the other take again is he's very odd too. I mean that's the uh, that's that's what my wife my wife's position on this is that Jonah Hill is weird, which I think is also. <laughs> As hard to refute as uh, Sarah Brady being a better surfer than than both of us. It also has gotten into this other realm, Kat, of here's... Okay, can you explain this to me? I keep seeing people castigate Jonah Hill for doing therapy talk or speaking in therapies. But all the people saying this, to my mind, generally my impression, are very pro-therapy. As someone who has not had therapy, it, it is confusing to me. I feel as though the people who are pro-therapy, there's this overlapping Venn diagram of pro-therapy people who really dislike when you talk in the uh, voice of therapy. What's up with that? Um, yeah, I saw that too, the idea that he's weaponized therapeutic language. <laughs> so I, much weaponizing these yes, days. Yes, <laughs> but okay, but this is the thing. I think that like therapy speak and like therapeutic culture is basically the entire framework for how people understand human interaction and romantic relationships, especially now. It's like nobody has conflicts anymore. Nobody has fights. Nobody just breaks up. It's all like somebody violated my boundaries and triggered me. Mm. And now I have trauma and, um, and this is abuse. Like it's, I don't know, you've heard the phrase conflict is not abuse. That was impressive that you were doing that many, that many associations right there. (laughs) Scattershot just four in a five second span. Very well done. Yes, yes. I'm like an auctioneer for uh, weird therapy <laughs> talk. But what I think we're ending up with um, by, you know, with the proliferation of this type of language is it's kind of seeped into everything. You see it on TikTok all the time. This is like how people talk about their relationships. They're basically pathologizing the normal business of being a mm. person. Yeah. And something I, re- I remember seeing actually, this would have been, this was maybe a few years ago. I noticed that this was happening when Juno Diaz, the, uh, the author was being me too. Oh yeah. It's like they found, um, they kind of put out a call for people to come forward with stories. And they found like three women he dated who would attest that he was a dick. And then they, sorry, can I say dick on your podcast? Dude, you can say anything. I'm just okay. my own platform. I, <laughs> I saw your eyebrows I, uh, go up and I was like, whoops, I said the D word. Um, no, it's, but, no, it's just, he, I, I have giant eyebrows. So it tends to exaggerate <laughs> my reactions. Continue. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so they found three women who would, who attested that like he was not the ideal boyfriend. And then that became a pattern of behavior. It's like three women said this guy was a dick. He is a pattern of behavior. And it makes mm. it sound so sordid. And it's it makes it sound killer. so bad. Yes. I mean, and it's like, <laughs> once you start talking about things in this way, it's impossible to know what you're actually talking about. It's impossible to have like a reasonable discussion about it because suddenly everything is the end of the world. Yeah. And the vibes is what people are reacting to because mm-hmm. we're all distracted and I could barely do the exposition of this. So whatever happened on the granular level falls by the wayside. And if you're being spoken of in a certain way with that kind of tone, and it does sound like CSI, then it's doing reputational damage to you without anybody actually having a handle 
on what happened. You you mentioned Diaz got me too, and I thought to myself, I don't. I remember he got me too. I don't remember anything really involved in it until you just described it. And so that's another aspect of uh, what happens in the culture. And frankly, why even if Jonah Hill is a weirdo, I do feel sympathy because I don't think I've got some insight into how it's emotionally devastating and whatever sort of therapy ease I could use to describe it when you are the main character in this kind of way. And I couldn't even imagine it on this particular scale. Um, And yet at the same time, the memory is just going to be something vague. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. just going to be something, something vague, something with you and a woman, something with you and your ex, maybe something controlling. I don't, I don't know, but it's just one of these particular topics that seems to be connected to a bunch of others right now. Yeah. A year from now, his name's going to come up and someone's going to be like, Jonah, he killed somebody, right? That's <laughs> what he, he killed someone. You know? Someone. <laughs> he had a pattern. Like he had a, a pattern of behavior. Yes. Um, is the, I love the Aaron Sorkin quote about bad publicity that um, it's like seasickness. Uh, you feel like you're going to die and everybody else just thinks it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, some people are reacting to this seriously and, you know, very serious think pieces, but for the rest of us, it's, it's fodder for your summer league conversation or your podcast. But the therapy aspect is an interesting one. I, have you watched his, uh, his movie with his therapist, uh, the Stutz? No, no. I do understand that the fact that he put this out there um, and, you know, kind of publicly advertised that he was trying to be a better person through therapy was then held up as evidence of why he basically deserved for this to happen to him, uh, which I think is really awful. Um, yeah. It's sort of like, you know, you're you're making an attempt to, I don't know, to better yourself or to shine a light on something that you think is valuable. And as a result, oh, you've just given us all the ammunition we need to destroy you. Don't, don't but, you hate how people aren't just upfront that, look, I just want to be a shitty bully. I just want to be a bully. Nobody ever says that. They have to, as you're saying, come up with a rationalization for why they get to heap on abuse and join the mob. At least that speaks to their humanity, Cat. I guess, is that they feel they need a rationalization. I, maybe we're going to be really <laughs> lost when people just go, I don't, I don't care. It's fun. I have a theory about this that as overt bullying of the kind that I and I would I would guess you grew up with um, sort of went by the wayside and fell out of vogue that the savviest youngsters, the youths figured out a way to bully people in the name of social justice. Yeah. Well, everybody uses social justice just as kind of a cover to get what they want anyway. I've seen that happen and play out again and again. You see social climbers within organizations and they take their shot at it and they take people out. And I mean, there are a lot of stories of of that happening just in sports. So that would make a lot of sense. And I think people have even framed it in such a way. I'm trying to remember... I'm trying to remember, there's a tweet about this that was somewhat viral that um, it's no accident that many of the people, uh, Gawker writers, ex-Gawker writers, Drew McGarry comes to mind where you can find evidence of them a decade or so ago saying fag and, you know, bullying people with homophobic sort of speech that they're really social justice now. And it's because that was the way then to be a bully. And this is the way now to be a bully. And so that's just the way you do it. 
Right. It's like Jurassic Park, but with bullies. Bullies find a way. <laughs> Dude, you don't even you probably don't even know this, but for whatever reason, Jurassic Park tends to come up a lot on this podcast and um its quotes remain remain timeless. And I'm guessing uh we'll do so there ever after. Um on the therapy front, I the the or the therapy movie, um, I found his therapist to be fascinating. Um I don't know what the rules are ethically because that was the other conversation. Is it okay to make a movie about your therapist? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Did the therapist consent? No, that's the most Presumably? interesting part of it. He had no idea it was happening. No, he, he consented <laughs> to it. I actually think if you do see the movie, there's a bit more context for why this would be permissible. His therapist uh, has Parkinson's and you can see it starting to advance and he's mm -hmm. get, you know, getting a bit more shaky. And so I think there is this sense of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to broaden your communication. If you're trying to help people, um, Jonah Hill, maybe you could say it's not the best for an individual patient perhaps to have public exposure, but he's a pretty good vessel for getting some of these rules that they're talking about out to everybody. So I understood it and um, I didn't see it as a rationalization to uh, bully the, well, let's, let's face it. Let's be upfront about this too. There's this other aspect where Jonah Hill is, is kind of the fat kid. And so it's almost like to what you're saying, we get to bully the fat kid again, but just, you know, in, in this context, in this way. And that seems to be one of the many late motifs of this particular imbroglio. Yeah, I think that there is like kind of subtextually in all of this, a little bit of resentment coming out that Jonah Hill, because he is famous, um, managed to snag himself a woman like he outkicked his coverage like they say yeah, how, dare, um, how dare he yeah a much a much hotter woman than he would have been able to had he been just like you know some schlub from a non-hollywood background and so you know there's a sense that he he already had more than he deserved and here's a chance to take him down a peg um again that's a distasteful thing but i think it's something real i think that it's definitely contributing to what we're seeing here yeah. Well, the other theory, one theory that was thrown at me by a friend is that you should be more sympathetic to his insecurity on the basis of this because you can mock him for being insecure. But wouldn't you always be some level of insecure if you weren't physically alluring enough to be whoever you were with and that person was with you through this sort of ineffable status? That's another take. Yeah, I mean, that really ties into the way that people kind of view relationships now, not just between celebrities, but celebrity introduces an interesting wrinkle into it where the entire framework for it, and I, I think this is quite bleak and quite cynical, but it's oh, the idea I that it's... I can't wait. I'm excited <laughs> for this. It's all Sorry. about power and privilege. You know, that's, mm. the main, that's the main thrust of things. And I hate this as a way to understand interpersonal relationships um, because first and foremost, it's completely... Uh, well, I mean, it's bullshit and it's especially bullshit for women because the idea is like, oh, 3000 years of patriarchy. You're never going to overcome that. Like men are bigger, bigger and stronger. You're never going to overcome that. And so the idea is that as a woman, if you're in a heterosexual pairing, you're just always at a disadvantage. You never have any power in the relationship. You're just forever on the precipice of victimhood, you know, while somebody is going to 
push you off at any moment. Um, but then once you get celebrity involved, then it's, well, you know, she couldn't like meaningfully consent to this relationship because the power imbalance is so strong. Mm. You know, Jonah Hill has so much more fame and so much more money. Um, she was, I don't know, incapacitated by it. And it's just kind of funny to contrast that sensibility surrounding relationships with like, I think about the conversation I had about this on my own podcast with my friend and co-host Phoebe. And we're like yucking it up over the idea that it wouldn't be a relief when Jonah Hill told you he wasn't interested in you. No. <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I'm devastated. Oh, oh no. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, so the fame aspect of it is a whole other thing. And again, it's, Big hits are a, a, a new spin on an old thing. And so the, there are age old questions uh, in this. But then there's this aspect that's hard to relate to, which is the way fame alters relationships, which most people don't encounter. They don't encounter situationally. And yet I think there's a fascination with it. And it's something that I think a lot about having just been at an industry event where some people who are there are really famous and other people are not so famous and they're all intermingling and the famous person's fame is always in the room. It's always part of what's going on. It's why if they were to call you and you were around your college friends, it would be kind of exciting to your college friends that that famous person was calling you. And that's just something that is always going to alter dynamics. I saw, um, I was, uh, I was on the floor of the Aria uh, casino and Warriors coach, Steve Kerr, and his wife Margot were walking through, and I covered the Warriors for years. So I, you know, I, I bounced up and I started saying hey, and we started catching up. But the whole time, as it's on the casino floor, there are people who are just streaming up to Steve because he's famous and he's this bug light for these people. So I just turn my head and I just start having a conversation with Margot because it's you know I mm -hmm. he's just getting enveloped by a sea of humanity, and it reminded me of how. Famous people just live in a different orbit. I had another interaction with Steve in Vegas where our conversation got interrupted by um, a parent using their child as this fodder to ask for a picture. The parent really wanted the picture. The child was way too small and freaked out and started crying. Steve oh, no. uh, was not happy with the guy, but he... He looked at me and just said, I fucking hate when this happens and I hate when they do this. And this is just a like they see the darkness in humanity that we don't see. Well, I won't say we because we're very famous and I don't want to. I'm saying the other people, <laughs> the listeners. But no, the, the super famous people, I can almost even if I'm not going to cry a river on behalf of their trauma and their boundaries and everything else, I can at least understand I think it's quite psychologically deranging to not be able to know who to trust and to be in this different sort of space than anybody you're trying to form a meaningful bond with is my long-winded way of saying it. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think that maybe one of the things that people end up doing when they're trying to cope with something like that, where they do have serious trust issues stemming from the fact that they know there's an allure to them that has nothing to do with who they are as a person. Um, they might, for instance, go a little too hard on therapy and therapizing and, you know, making all of their relationships try to fit into this, like, my boundaries kind of framework, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I mean, 
yeah, maybe being controlling makes sense in that context. You're looking for some sort of control or anchor to windward. And um, I think that that is it. That's the thing. That's the thing in my head that isn't a very important issue societally. But I sometimes wonder if you're a famous person, can you find love after achieving fame? Is it even really possible with a non-famous person? Well, let's think about this. Are there famous people who were who married non-famous spouses after they got famous? Matt Damon, I did did I think right? That may be the only. I, I yeah, I didn't I didn't know about that one. I mean, I'm sure it has happened. I'm sure it's possible, but generally, I mean occasionally you'll see somebody who's famous and their significant other might be considered abrasive. And then you learn that they were together before the fame and I'll go, Oh yeah, that makes, that makes sense. That makes sense. I just recently watched a documentary uh, called quarterback on Netflix where they had just uncommon access and the superstar quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. I'll just be frank. His wife might have a reputation for being a little bit abrasive. Um, and, but is I he the one with the funny hair? Is he the one with the yes. funny hair? Oh, I like he, him a lot. His wife is he's, abrasive. He's very likable. Um, she she's known for being maybe a little bit a little bit abrasive, not unkind. It's hard to really you know. There could be a whole discourse. Uh, you you might that might be a good article for you in the future. Is is whether the culture is being unfair? To, yeah, is that uh, sexist? I'm wondering, you know, is it it? <laughs> you know, it, it might be. But let's just say for the sake of argument that she is abrasive. I, in the documentary, I saw that their relationship started when she was a grade above him and she was in the eighth grade and he was in the seventh grade. And he got friend zoned by her for maybe a good year before the relationship developed. And I went, OK, well, he's never going to get that. That is something that he is not going to find outside of her. Somebody whose status was was above his at a certain point and who he formed a meaningful bond with prior to becoming the greatest, you know, football player ever. So you kind of kind of can't swap that one out. And so that's a you know, it's a, you, the, the famous, I feel badly for that is what I'm saying. Yeah. Kat. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about what that, like do, I'm just doing the math. It, she would have just basically like seen him through puberty. That's a bond. You can't really yeah. replace that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about that. I mean, okay. So you, you are a public person. Uh, do you think that has changed, uh, you know, that has changed you in any fundamental way or any meaningful way or, you know, like what's your, what's your take on yourself? It's so bizarre to think of myself as a public person. Um, I'm, but as I've become, I would say like quasi known in very niche circles, even that has been a little bit more than I want. And so now I'm very protective of my Mm. privacy. Yeah, yeah. I think I have the exact right amount of if if I see somebody out in the world, every now and again somebody will recognize me and it's very it's exciting to me and it's totally a situation where I look around and go, "Oh man, nobody was around to see that." <laughs> if it happens like that. That would look cool, but I know some friends who are in that space where it's it's actual it's actual fame and um, it just seems to be paranoia, you know, paranoia inducing. So 
you know, maybe that's not the most pertinent aspect of this to the broader culture, but that was just something that, yeah, it's kind of like if you're, if you're a person with issues, I don't know. I don't know if you can ever truly find love. That's my take. I don't <laughs> know if the fa- I don't know if the famous can find love. And that's so maybe bleak. you can show me an example. And I'm not. You think that's a weak take, or you think it's a weak it's situation? Bleak. It's bleak. Bleak. I, bleak. I feel, I feel bad for the famous. I don't know. Yeah, you know the famous. They're uh, they're, they're different from you and I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is there any aspect of this uh, this controversy um, that surprised you? in the culture when you were, because again, you've got a different insight than I do. You're in some different spaces than I'm in. So, um, in God, what, you know, I was, here's something that surprised me when I clicked on this story, which I'd been resisting doing. I was like, please, I, I refuse to find out what this is. And then I had to, because I was talking about it on my podcast. So I clicked through to, um, you know, one of these stories that included some pictures of Jonah Hill and his then girlfriend out at a premiere together. And I was very surprised to see that Jonah Hill has an enormous, tattoo of a pirate ship on his chest. Huh. And uh, and he was wearing a suit jacket um, with nothing underneath at this premiere so that you could see the pirate ship. Um, I mean, he had pants on. I don't want to make this sound more obscene yeah, no, than, I it, think than it already does. The, I think I just saw this exact photo uh, in my crack research. Um, yeah, no, I see that. I didn't I didn't know it was a pirate ship, but now that's becoming clear to me. I thought it might have been an old timey baseball park. I mean, the shot I saw wasn't the same as yours. I only saw a part of it. Um, they could have been, you know, a cruise liner uh, from, <laughs> from this perspective as I look at it. Um, that is a very interesting choice. Also, he's his outfit is matching his now ex uh, in this photo that I'm looking at. At this uh, at this particular premiere, yes, they wore the same suit. I'm gonna say it looks better on her. But um, did anything <laughs> surprise me? You know, not no, not really. Um, I'm I'm so you, cynical. Well, you've talked <laughs> you've talked about a post Me Too moment. You've written about this. Do you think that the reaction to this was more tepid and critical of the accuser than would have been so four years ago? That's an interesting question. Um, no, I think I think it basically, at least in you know, from what I saw, it landed in the same way as, for instance, the Aziz Ansari thing landed. Mm. You know, back in what it, whatever that was, twenty seventeen. I think this is a similar situation where you have somebody who is, you know famous, not like super duper famous, not a hunk, not a heartthrob, but famous getting put on blast for behavior that is, you know, not ideal, but not necessarily, I mean, he's not a Weinstein or Weinstein, I don't remember how to pronounce his name. Um, but yeah, you know, we're, we're not talking about like the worst thing. We're talking about several degrees below the worst thing. And in that sense, I do think that the response to this was basically unchanged. There are people who just thrive on these controversies and and enjoy them and don't want to let them go. And I think they'll probably just continue to to get into them every time one pops up. The Aziz comp is a very good comp. And I think that psychology in the culture has worked itself out in a similar way um, in how it targets our most oppressed group, uh, homely men uh, who rise above their station and achieve fame, apparently, because there is uh, there is this resentment it, it, when this sort of sense that 
Hey, you didn't you didn't deserve to to get what you're getting, and you know we're gonna we're gonna cut you down a notch, or is it a peg? It's something. We're cutting you down some sort of cut you down Notches, to size. Pegs, it's all going. We're taking it something, off. Something, <laughs> something is happening right there, and um, I think that was the case with uh, with Aziz. It was the similar dynamic where if this was a a very good looking man, I don't think it's the same. Story at the same time, James Franco got me too. So I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's the exception that proves the rule, but that seems to be part of this whole this whole discourse. You think James Franco is a very good looking man? Isn't he considered to be? Isn't he? Uh, You're into James Franco. Do, that's, that's cool. It's fine. You're, you can gonna, be into gonna, James Franco. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Be, I'm, I'm not king shaming you. <laughs> I'm gonna do the. Uh, I'm gonna do the uh, vaguely homophobic uh, straight guy thing. Look, I don't know. I don't even know. I don't know what a good looking man is. I have no idea. It's like looking at inanimate objects, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I have no ability to judge. It's just what I read. It's what I read on Wikipedia that he was considered a good looking man. Looking at I mean, inanimate objects, Franco, not a bad I, way I think to describe da- James Franco. <laughs> I, I think Dave. I think Dave Franco is a good looking man. I think that's my that's my take. I think Dave Franco is a better looking man than James Franco. Yes, I'll agree with that. Um, yeah. yeah, James James Frank. I didn't even know they were brothers for a really long time because I didn't know who I didn't know what Dave Franco's name was. I just knew he was like that that hot guy from the thing. Um, mm. But yeah, James Franco. Okay, I guess I would say that he's the like of the cohort that he's associated with, which I guess includes like Seth Rogen and um, some other some of those guys. I guess he's probably yeah. like the best looking. He's like the best looking of the not super good looking men. I hope he doesn't. Guys. I hope he doesn't hear this. Um. <laughs> I have the same. I have the same feeling. I actually met James and Dave Franco once. Uh, they probably don't remember, but um, they were at Oracle Arena and they wanted an audience with Kevin Durant, uh, who at the time uh, it was kind of funny. I had an issue with Kevin Durant. It's not important, but I, I at least knew where he was having his press conference. So I at least had that going for me to help them. And so for about 15 minutes after a Warriors game, I just kind of shepherd Sherpa, whatever them around the stadium, uh, the bowels of the stadium so they could find their audience with, uh, with Kevin Durant. They were very nice. You know, I, I just, I basically pretended not to know anything about them. <laughs> that, that was, my strategy, like I, in the interaction and Smart. it kind of, kind of went better that way. It's like, Oh, you went to this high school. Oh, that's cool. You know, like, Oh, da, 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 da. It's just pretend, pretend not to know it went normally. This isn't pertinent to anything other than I would feel bad if they listened and they, they heard a critical take on their uh, appearances. But I think men's, uh, the role looks play with men is often a bit of a taboo topic and especially Mm -hmm. in sports i do think that there is some there would be a lot of discomfort among sports fans in fully discussing it so uh, one thing i think about sometimes is this does impact your marketability for superstars i've often wondered if certain certain players got uh more all-star votes than uh than they would have if it weren't for appearances it's part of life uh sam cassell was a excellent point guard it's okay to say he's ugly because he was famously ugly famously weird looking (laughs) but he only made one all-star game i mean these things you can google him google sam cassell how do you spell his last name i mean off the top of my head i'm a bad speller uh but it's with c-a-s-s-e-l can't 
can't quite remember if uh how many s's how many l's uh you're looking him up this, this is oh fun. yeah he's a little wall-eyed yeah okay i can see that i can see what you're saying um but yeah so you know to return to the topic of aziz ansari i think actually this is a really um salient point which is that he would not have even been in that position to be be tooed in the way he was if he were a more attractive man like one of the worst mm. parts and and most kind of pivotal parts of that incident was that Aziz was on a date with a woman who was not attracted to him. Um, she didn't ah. think he was hot. Like she was, she thought it would be fun to go out with somebody who was famous, but she didn't have any desire to like actually, you know, like hook up with him. And he, so of course, wanted to hook up with her. And so, like at the end of the night, they ended up in this situation where, I mean, one of the one of the pieces that came out after this, it was more sympathetic to him. Um, I think it was by Barry Weiss in the New York Times said, Aziz Ansari is guilty of not being a mind reader. And I think that is true. But I think that the thing that he failed to read the woman's mind about was he, did, he didn't realize that she was completely not attracted to him and didn't really want to be okay, there. That, that's a male-female difference. I don't think there are many men who would not be attracted to a woman that they go out with but feel they have to do it because of her uh, status or fame. I'm sure such men exist, but that just seems that that would be more atypical. That would be more atypical behavior. And your framing of it and description of it is so interesting to me because in my mind, it would be, oh, well, Henry Kissinger power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Translate that to fame. You know, she would be attracted to him, but this is something else where it's almost like, I'm not, but I should be. So I'm going to grit my teeth and we're going to go through this. I mean, is that the dynamic? That's it's so strange to me. I think so. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems closer to it than a lot of the other analyses of the situation that I saw at the time. Yeah, I guess. No, that that seems to be something that that seems like that would have happened. Now, do you think I've said on this podcast, uh, I have proposed a PR tactic that Aziz Ansari could have used to um, survive that one better. And I want your take on whether this would have been the proper way for him to have handled it and if it would have been successful in the culture. Um, and if I were consulting him, I, I would have said this. I would have said, I think what you should do is basically put out a statement and say the way it was characterized is not accurate and furthermore, um, I have to say that I think it's very insensitive as a white, non-Islamic woman for her to reveal that we have been dating in this way. I don't think she can possibly know how offensive this is in my culture and how offensive this is to my family and the trauma she has caused me. And I don't we'll have any follow up to this <laughs> other than to say that it is very convenient for her as a white woman to uh, engage in this sort of characterization. And I would furthermore, I just generally think that in the culture, if you're on the attack, things work out better than you're on the retreat. And I wonder if that would have opened up this whole realm of conversation and effectively have been a smoke bomb that would have uh, saved his hide in that particular situation. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, that's the, that's basically the the thing where you rip off the other guy's arms and start beating him with them after he's been beating you. I mean, if you can make it work, 
it's a bold move. Um, well, what, I, what would you have consulted? You know, it's like, join me in my PR for, for celebrities, uh, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's probably as, I mean, it's, oh God, it's so awful. It's, it's, it's I mean, such look, a, I'm not saying that I want this to be my job, Kat. I'm not saying that I want to be gross. a professional sociopath. Probably yes. I mean, yeah, professional sociopath. I mean that that is like Look, absolutely sociopathic. Having... It probably would have been effective. Yeah. It probably would have been more so than yeah. whatever he did, or possibly it would have just like resulted in this endless war of uh, everybody trying to kind of outwoke each other to to be the most victimized by that situation. Mm. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, we're having an is versus ought conversation here. I'm not saying that. I want to engage in such sociopathic behavior, though I will hear any offers from any PR firms. Like I don't, I'll take the meeting, (laughs) you know, I just have certain theories about, about the culture and about how obviously it's been borne out that if you apologize, you just open yourself up to vulnerability and people attack you and we're just animals. And we chase what retreats and that's just kind of how I've seen it play out. And I believe he apologized in that particular scenario. And I don't think, I don't think his reputation has really recovered though. Nobody can really articulate what's even wrong with him. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would not have advised him to apologize in that scenario. And I think that the, I mean, the thing that I, if I were a PR person, the advice that I would give to anybody who's subject to something like this would be, don't apologize unless you did something wrong. And mm. I don't think I, I mean, maybe this is, this is probably not a popular um, take amongst my kind of cohort of like pseudo feminist lefty culture people, but I don't really think he did anything wrong. I think misunderstandings happen. Um, and this was a venue in which misunderstandings were rife to happen for all kinds of reasons, including the ones that we've just discussed. Or maybe he did something wrong, but not by the rules of our culture, and that we've sort of we, we we've sort of um, normalized, to use a word, people dating very casually in a way that perhaps they're not able to really handle, or lead it leads to friction, or it leads to you know it leads to bad situations, and so maybe there's an aspect of that where uh, it wasn't. I mean, what he did was probably very wrong by the standards of 100 years ago. (laughs) Just, you know, um, and maybe I'm not being very articulate on this one, but maybe there was some wrongness in the whole thing. But the wrongness was a fairly banal and commonplace wrongness that's been kind of encouraged by the culture up until the point. Yeah. I mean, we are in this moment, or at least we were, um, where anytime something went wrong between a man and a woman, it was just presumed to be a consent issue. Um, you know, it's like he must have done something me too-ish and that and that's that. And it would be all kind of shoved into this framework, which was one of the things about the Me Too movement that really started to drive me crazy. It started to it started out so promisingly. Um, it was about women at work and women's professional opportunities and why those shouldn't have like a sexual component. And then all of a sudden, everybody decided that it was a useful tool for litigating their interpersonal disappointments, yeah. and they just ran with it. And now that's all it is. Mm, yeah. Uh, it's uh, So what do you mean by the post Me Too movement? You wrote that in 2022. I mean, what what is the moment we're in? If we're reacting the same way to Jonah Hill, 
as we're reacting or reacted to uh, Aziz Ansari, has anything changed? I think that maybe we've seen a permanent shift in terms of um, the likelihood that stuff like this becomes public and mm. becomes like an, an entry into this sort of team sport shaming that is such a big thing for us as a culture. I don't know when that's going to go away if it ever does. I think like the internet would basically have to die for that to also die. Yeah, I don't think that we can really put the genie back in the bottle. Um, I don't know how it would happen. Um, I feel I felt similar about Twitter when Musk bought it and their discussions of how he could change it uh, for the better in theory. And at least as far as user friendliness has gone, it has not been changed for the better. It's It's been changed for the worse. But I couldn't come up with any kind of way that you could make Twitter what it was in 2011. Um, when it seemed to be a cooler place. I, I have no way to do that. There's just some sort of a Rubicon that we've crossed that we can't uncross. Um, and, and here we are. Uh, yeah, well, I guess some, some general questions to, to finish up on. Um, how do you feel about, how do you feel about the culture? That's a big one, your place in it. You write about a lot of controversial stuff. I don't know if I properly introduced you, uh, to some in the audience who might not know about what you do. I, I'm curious. You'll actually mix it up on Twitter still. You'll actually still tweet, which I find to be uh, that's that's a crazy thing to do. Um, how do you experience it all? I mean, are you just placid? Are you just not affected? Are you just numb? Uh, what's it like? <laughs> I no longer have any feelings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I I don't know. I. It, this stuff doesn't really bother me that much anymore. I have, um, there, there was a time it was, gosh, it was like almost six years ago now when I really went through it on Twitter. Um, I was sort of pseudo canceled, although the folks who were trying to do this to me, um, they, they tried to shoot their shot with a false accusation. They really should have waited mm. until I, until I actually did something wrong. Um, but yeah, so I, I've been through it and I've sort of developed, I guess, a pretty thick skin as a result. Um, but the other thing is that the kind of writing I do, as you know, you were talking about the is-ought distinction, I dwell pretty much entirely in the is. I'm really not interested yeah. in prescriptive writing. I don't think that I have solutions to things. I'm just really interested in what's going on. I see the culture writing I do as a truth-seeking exercise primarily. Mm. Um, there's this Joan Didion quote where she says that she, I'm going to botch it, but it's something about how she writes to understand what she's seeing and what it means. And yeah. that's, you know, more or less how I feel about this type of writing as an enterprise. And I write fiction for the same reason. You know, as a novelist, I'm always sort of trying to kick over a rock and figure out what's under there and what it means um, and what other people think it means. So... Um, I mean, as far as like how it hits, I don't know. I, I just think that's, I think everything's interesting. I just think it's all really interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't have really an emotional investment in it. Yeah, I can completely relate to that on, I, and that's one of my central frustrations with the culture, with the discourse, with some other people in media. I often feel, don't you guys find anything interesting? Is nothing interesting to you? Is this it's all about a moral um, edict. And uh, it just, I, it, it, there are so few people now 
writing in general. That's number one. But number two, just talking about, oh, this is interesting. Like, uh, this is my assessment of this. Isn't this intriguing? You know, we can have, you're not going to have a good conversation about Jonah Hill without, I think, being scared that any of our assessments aren't falling into some sort of didactic paradigm. It's just, it's fun to talk about things. And God, it opens up a market opportunity for you and for myself, but it's sort of maddening on the same side that uh, the culture just seems very, just very paralyzed um, and also in denial that it is paralyzed. Yeah, I think that there's been a kind of a push that I don't appreciate to make both curiosity and imagination kind of taboo um, in cultural spaces. Curiosity more on the journalistic side and imagination more in the um, publishing, like fiction writing side. There's, uh, yeah, but there's just a lot of people who are like, don't ask about that. Don't talk about that. And if you say so that you find something interesting, oftentimes people will try to kind of lip lift up the corner of what you're saying. They're like, what do you mean interesting? What are you really saying? It's like, no, it's just Mm. interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. You would talk about that. Now I went, I went through that a little bit with my thing on the, um, the Cavender twins. Um, I loved that piece, by the way. I thought it was great. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and to, to me, it was just one of these, I think I have this thing. You probably have it too, where I sometimes have people ask me, why are you a contrarian? And I'll think to myself, I don't think I am. I think I just often will notice something and I know everybody notices that thing and it will start to bother me. And I can't come up with a more appealing metaphor, but it's almost like the pressure in a pimple. And you're just, you just want, you just want some sort of release and to be able to just say the thing everybody notices that you're also noticing. And I think that there's this urge to do that. And so um, in the case of that piece, it's just, look, it seems like many of the women in college sports uh, who are getting a lot of the money, uh, there's a big looks component to it in a way that doesn't seem to be representing itself as much with the men, which is A, um, I guess many would say it's very predictable, but B, very taboo to discuss, which makes it interesting (laughs) in of itself. If there's an obvious phenomenon that we're all seeing, then why would it be taboo to describe it? And uh, I learned that it's taboo, uh, I guess, because I guess you're going to become the main character on Twitter for that day. Uh, but but yeah, it's just that's what it was about to me is this this is an interesting thing. Where is this headed? What does this mean for college sports where suddenly you go from a situation where um, all the women women are being paid the same amount of money and status is achieved through victory um, to this other thing where now it's all confounded and winning the championship is good for status, but you could be perhaps way more famous by, you know, like playing a little bit, but being very well branded on TikTok and being good looking. I mean, these are interesting things to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is an observe phenomenon and something that should be talked about maybe even because it makes people so uncomfortable that just makes it more kind of intriguing yeah and i mean why does it make people uncomfortable i mean there are endless topics uh related to uh to that topic and that's why we'll have to have you back on one day because i'm sure there will be not only a subject that um consumes the culture even at nba summer league but maybe 
that overlaps with sports. You know, I find it interesting that before this conversation, were you really thinking how I was going to overlap it with the sports? Was that really a, yes. was that really a thought? I, you know, I listen to your podcast sometimes and I'm always curious when you have somebody on who's not a sports person, I'm like, okay, how is he going to make this about sports? And you always do a very good job. I even came prepared to like, you know, talk about sports. I was going to say something if you asked, <laughs> I don't know what, 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 what were you going to say? What were you going to say? I'm intrigued by this. I don't know. I was going to, you know, I, th I thought maybe I would find a way to like talk about baseball, which is the only sport that I've ever watched recreationally. See, I thought that you, this is when you did your research into Pat Mahomes' hairstyle was in that 15 minutes of prep right before we, uh, right <laughs> before we started talking. And that's when the, the discovery was made uh, during the crash course. What were you going to say about baseball? Now, now I'm oh, intrigued. What is your history with it? No, I hope you would, you would ask me a question that I would you know, be able to respond to intelligently or at least pseudo-intelligently. Um, what's my history with baseball? Well, I grew up watching... I grew up watching was, the Yankees yeah. in the nineties and, um, mm. and so I love them. <laughs> oh, there you go. Best looking Yankee of the night. No, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's Derek Jeter. Jeter. Yeah, it's Jeter. Yeah. Yeah. He's the uh, biracial angel, as was said in the movie, the other guys. Oh, okay. Uh, Kat, um, what do you want to plug for us on the outro? What should we oh. be uh, checking out? Uh, let's see. Um, well, I am a culture writer and novelist, and my most recent book is called You Must Remember This. It was released in hardcover in January, but it will be out in paperback in November, just in time to make your holidays weird if you would like to pick it up mm. at any place books are sold. One question. Why would that make our holidays weird? Um, because it's a book about murder at Christmas. Mm -hmm. That actually sounds intriguing to me. I've wanted to, um, I should be doing the outro. I always screw up the outro. <laughs> that's that's uh, something that happens. I've wanted to have uh, Nancy Rommelman on at some point to just have a, like a morbid Monday because um, for whatever reason, I'm drawn. And as you probably know, she's drawn to those sorts of uh, those sorts of grim topics. You know, when Mount Everest tragedy starts popping on Twitter, as it occasionally does, I'm going to lose a few hours. So Anyway, that makes it more intriguing to myself and probably to much of the audience. Thanks so much for stopping by, Kat. Thanks for having me.